I invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 3 this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are in an exposition of the Gospel of John. And we come to that wonderful section in chapter 3. And I'd like to read for you as we begin at 3.15. And we come to that wonderful statement, of course, in John 3.16 but we have the beauty to see it in an exposition this morning. You follow along as I begin at John 3.15, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so we come here this morning to possibly, what do you think, the the, the greatest scripture ever penned in God's word. In fact, who has not heard John 3.16 in America? Uh, You see it postered, it's all over the place at times. It used to be on sporting events all the time, on Monday Night Football. Maybe some of you remember that. But I think it is a very, very familiar scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. One writer said of John 3.16, the verse is an alphabet of grace, a table of contents to the Christian hope. Each word is a safe deposit box of jewels, end of quotes. Another writer said that John 3.16 is the north star of the Bible. If you align your life with it, you can find the way home. There it is, the north star of the Bible. Still another by the name of Frank Page, who was a past president of Southern Seminary, said of John 3.16, it is the Mount Everest of Scripture passages from God's Word. And there's many more. It was said that of Martin Luther, when the great reformer was dying, and he had severe headaches, and he was bedridden, he was often... He was offered a medication to relieve the discomfort. He declined and he explained and said this, quote, The best prescription for head and heart is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what Luther said. In fact, Luther called John 3.16 the heart of the Bible. The heart of the Bible. In fact, he said of John 3.16, it is the gospel in miniature, if you will. Now, who in here would not be familiar with the chorus, Jesus loves me, this I know. No doubt it has influenced more children for Jesus Christ than any other chorus in the world What's interesting about that chorus is the lyrics were written by a woman by the name of Anna Warner. She published that in one of her uh, novels where she published this in 1869. In fact, songwriter William Bradbury later added the refrain. So John 3.16, we all know, but lest we become too familiar with it, our goal, as always, is to see John 3 in its context. And so that's going to be the the role of our study here this week and the weeks to come. Now remember as we come into John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. He is having a conversation 
in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus at night. We know from the text in our earlier study, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. That was quite a, not a huge group of men. There were 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus. They were obviously meticulous about observing the law. The text says here in John chapter 3 that he was a ruler of the Jews. When you go over to John chapter 7, you don't have to turn there. Um, it says that in three one, a ruler of the Jews made him a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the supreme court of the day. It's interesting, I don't think I've mentioned thus far that there are some people in history, not biblical literature, that would say that Nicodemus was one of the three most wealthy of all the Jewish people in the nation. So you put it all together, I mean, he's a Pharisee, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, he's part of the Supreme Court of the day, he, he's a ruler, and it could be that he's very wealthy, and Jesus began to instruct him about the new birth, and he couldn't understand it. In fact, look at chapter 3, verse 9, he said, how can these things be? And it ends there, verse 9, with that question, And Nicodemus is not seen again until John chapter 7. He will be seen again in John chapter 19. So the monologue that our Lord had with Nicodemus now goes from verse 10 into, excuse me, the dialogue he was having now goes into a monologue. It's Jesus. Now, if, if you glance down at your Bible, let me just take care of a few things up front here. As we approach the text... And you're reading it as I am. Look at it again at verse 15. And I don't mean to waste time here, but there will be, of course, a few of you noble Bereans who will wonder about this. Have you ever asked this question? Look at 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16. For God so loved the world. Some say that John adds his editorial comments, John the Apostle beginning from verse 15 down through the end of the chapter. So that as Jesus said in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And some people would finish that to be Jesus' words and then begin John the Apostle either at verse 15 or to begin John the Apostle's words at verse 16. Okay, now you thought, well, Scott, I've never really (laughs) thought about it. This is, uh, who is the speaker there? Well, listen, I see the conversation unbroken by the Lord. I see no reason to think that the conversation is broken up and that John the Apostle entered in at verse 16. So I believe that the scripture goes all the way down to verse 21, and then John the Apostle picks up again after these things in verse 22, okay? The text indicates there's no change of speaker. It could either be Jesus or John, but since the voice of Jesus and the voice of the risen Jesus through the Apostle John are so interwoven in this book There is no great difference between putting the quotation mark at verse 15 or at verse 21. In essence, it doesn't matter. This is the clear teaching of the Word of God. But I do believe it's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, glance down in your Bible. Just unpack this just for a moment, right? Because this is an exposition of John 3.16, okay? But you've always known that. You've quoted it before. The, The Word begins in verse 16 with... The word we call for, God so loved the the world. And maybe you've never stopped there and looked. You have to ask, it doesn't just begin God so loved the world. There's a little linking clause there. It's the word for. And you'd ask, why is it there? And uh, it's there for clarification. It's there for a clarification why eternal life is made available for all. Look back in your Bible at verse 15, that whoever believes in him, speaking of the, of the one lifted up, Christ, verse 14, but whoever believes in him may in him have eternal life. It's there for clarification. It answers the question, uh, why does 
Why is that gospel go out to whoever believes? Here's why. For God so loved the world. It's the reason why God loves the world. Now remember just as we come into this text, as we glanced back last week at verse 14, we saw that as the bronze serpent was lifted up, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's a reference to the cross of Christ. In fact, in John, for this letter, the cross is the climax of the Lord's mission on earth. And that mission here, as we proceed, is grounded in the love of God. Now, this will be our focus up to Christmas, okay? We will examine the greatest gift ever given, and it will take us right into Christmas Sunday, which I believe is December 20th, okay? So we're going to spend four weeks on the Savior. One of those weeks we'll do communion. I'll be away one of those weeks. But here in God's providence, we're in John 3. I'm going to take some time here so that you understand this entire section. It's life-changing in John 3, 16 through 21. Four weeks on the greatest gift ever given. Now, as we approach the text, John three sixteen through 21 is one of the greatest summaries concerning the doctrine of salvation in the New Testament. In other words, I, you know, we take it as something that goes on a card, something that goes on a jersey, something that's written on a shoe, something that's given in memory of somebody, and, and those are all fine. But I'm telling you, it's one of the greatest summaries in all of the New Testament on the doctrine of salvation. John 3.16, and as we proceed through 21, is a summary of the gospel itself. And so if you get this, you get the gospel. In fact, John 3.16, one said, is the background of the canvas on which the rest of the gospel is painted. And so it's important for us. And so what I want to do today and in the weeks to come is to bring you to a number of key elements in the doctrine of salvation that displays God's sacrificial love for the world, okay? We're going to look at some of these key elements of the doctrine of salvation that display his sacrificial love for the world. So let's look at the first two elements today. We're going to be looking at the source of salvation and the scope of salvation. And you're going to want to make sure that you're here next week for sure as I didn't quite finish, and I'll have to tell you more on the scope of salvation. And I hope as we begin to study this, number one, we'll be brought into worship. I mean, we state as our purpose statement right there on the bulletin that Grace Church of the Valley exists to glorify God by exalting the Savior. And so here, as we just come to the exposition We're going to exalt the Savior, but we're going to do it through an exposition. In fact, I was trying to think, and you don't have to have a show of hands, but I wondered in this flock how many of you have heard an exposition of John 3, 16 through 21. And that's not to downplay any of your background, but just as a pastor, I'm just thinking what happens in most churches is is it seems like there's there's a lack of focus In the Word of God. So we'll have the joy to do this in the weeks to come, and I I want you to get it. In fact, in my heart, I want to write a book on this because I think it's so important, okay? But number one, the source of salvation. Now, I didn't get too far in verse 16. You can see it there. I'm highlighting this phrase for, and you can stop there on the second word, God. For God so loved the world. And the source of our salvation, as he talks about eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, the source of eternal life is God. And then we ask the question, who exactly is this God? And here what Jesus is saying is that here it originates here. Salvation at its source is bound up in God the Father. I must just say that even to say that, it blows me away that as you continue in the phrase, that God the Father loves the world in this magnificent way. 
And when I'm saying God the Father, you could ask and say, well, Scott, why is it not God the Holy Spirit? Why is it not God the Son? Well, we say for God, because obviously later here in verse 16, he's going to say that he gave his only son. And when you look in passages such as John 6, 45 through 36, John 13, 3, John 20, 17, they're all referring to God the Father. So here, when you talk about the source of our salvation, it begins with God the Father. Now, I just want you to remember who it is that, is, that has started salvation. It is God. And of course, in your mind, you're thinking, who is this God? Then you're thinking back to the scriptures and you're thinking back to his attributes. The source of our salvation is God, who is named the eternal one. Who, in other words, he never started. He always is, okay? He is the eternal one in scripture. He is the self-existent one in Scripture. He is the uncreated one in the Word of God. He is omnipotent God. He is omnipresent God. He is omniscient God. He is holy God. And then as you begin to glance at a Scripture, the Scripture gives names for God, such as His name is Lord High or Lord God. And then God most high. He is described in the word of God as everlasting God. Another one of his names is God Almighty. He calls himself in the book of Exodus, I am. There's numerous places where his title and his name is Lord. He is described as eternal God. He is living God. He is described as king eternal. He is sovereign God. And then that's just a list of few. You begin to think about his attributes. And God is described in the word of God as incomparable. He's described as unscrutable. He is described as unchangeable, unequal, unsearchable. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's wise. And it goes on. Then in the word of God, they give God titles. And the the titles are just a list of few. He's called the creator. He's called the judge. He's called the king. He's called defender. And then his works in the word of God are described as awesome, great, manifold, marvelous. And then if it's not just his works, it's his ways. The ways of God are described as perfect, as knowledgeable, as righteous, as true, as everlasting. I mean, beloved, just for a moment here, what a wonder that the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all life and breath, the high and exalted one, the one who is worshipped by angels and, who, and in whose presence they cry, holy, holy, holy is the source of your salvation. Amen? He's the source of your salvation. That God and much more is the one who originated your salvation. And and when I got to that point on creator, my mind began to work, and I read this this week. And this is a little bit uh, just, uh, it's, it's illustrative, okay? But if you just consider God as the creator, consider that the Milky Way galaxy, and, and this is right, okay, is 100 billion stars, okay? Our galaxy is one of billions of others. I mean, who can conceive of such a universe, let alone infinite numbers of the universe? No one can. But let's try anyways. Suppose you attempt, suppose, to drive to the sun, okay? A car dealer offers you a sweet deal on a space vehicle, no doubt solar-powered, and this car averages 150 miles per hour. You hop in that car, okay? You get in, you open the moonroof, just pretend, okay? And you, and you take off. 
you drive in that car 150 miles per hour, non-stop, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Got it? And is there any guess to the length of your trip? Okay. Any guess to the length of your trip to drive to the sun, 150 miles per hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, it would take you 70 years to get to the sun. Then suppose, after stretching your legs and catching a few rays from the sun, you you fuel up and you take off to this system called Alpha Centauri, the next closest star system. And it would be best at that point if you pack a lunch and clear your calendar, okay? Because it, here, here's why. You'll need 15 million years to make the trip, okay? But maybe you're sitting out there saying, I don't like to drive. Okay, then pretend you can board a jet, okay? A jet that would pass through and zip through our solar system at a blistering 600 miles per hour, okay? 600 miles per hour. In 16.5 days, you would reach the moon, okay? In 17 years, taking that jet, you would pass the sun. And in, listen to this, 690 years later, you can enjoy dinner on Pluto. That's amazing, isn't it? After seven centuries, you haven't even left our solar system, much less our galaxy. And what I'm telling to you, telling you, is Creator God, that one, who created all the earth, who created the world, who the psalmist said the heavens declare the glory of God is the one who so loved the world. You say, but Scott, what, what, what moves God, though, to give his only and unique son? Well, look at the text again in 3.16. It says there, still under the source, for God so loved the world. So loved is the focus here. And Scripture is replete with the fact that God is a God of love. Scriptures declare in 1 John 4, 8 that anyone who does not love does not know God. You know that phrase? Because God is what? He's love. In His character, bound up in His person, is that supreme attribute of love. Now, I don't have time to develop this here because um, we'll, we'll develop it when I get to the other places in John. But this is an unbelievable phrase when it talks about loving the world and not just loving the world, but loving it, relationships that are bound up in our community of faith. Because in John's gospel, everywhere, it would state that the Father loves the Son. And in the Word of God, it would say that the Son loves the Father. Then it will also say that Jesus loves His own, namely the disciples, and they, in turn, love the Son, and in turn, love one another. And here, in many other passages, God is seen and depicted here under the source of our salvation as loving the world. Now, this is in the Word of God. Of course, Titus 3, 4 says that when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. There He is described as Jesus, as God our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. So not only does God love the world, but Christ loves the world. Of course, if you're in Christ, in Ephesians 2, 4, God being rich in mercy because of His great Love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. 
we know that it says in 1 John that we love because he what? He first loved us. And so here, God's love is so esteemed, and we'll pick this up next week too, but it's so esteemed, not because the world is so big, not because the world is so vast, but he so loved the world, if you will, here because the world is actually the opposite. It's so evil and it's so corrupt. In fact, I ask you, were, were we, as human beings, worthy of that love that he loved us? And we would all say, no. What's interesting, when you think about he so loved the world as the source and you could even call love the spring or the motive of salvation. It's what moved God. He loved the world. And I just make a contrast because we often love what's lovely. Is that, is that fair? We, we, in fact, when I was first attracted to my wife, where is she? She should probably get mad I say this, but I liked her. I liked the way she talked. I liked the way she looked. Okay, I loved her heart for God. I loved her heart for service. In fact, after I met my wife, I went and got my Bible off my shelf and went, blew the dust off it because she was on fire all the same time I was working on my three-point jump shot, my ability to go right and left as the point guard. She was in Bible school, but I loved her. And, and, and I loved her when I saw her, when I met her, and obviously it led us to marriage. But you can understand my object is others-oriented on what I see. But you understand when you talk about agape love here, there was nothing in us that was worthy of God loving you and me, right? There was nothing in your person that he would look at that would establish a love relationship with you. I mean, we love because of the loveliness of the object. But in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. So please understand, God is not moved to save us because he saw something in us. He's not moved to save us because there's something deserving in us. In other words, we didn't bring something to this great salvation. The motive of salvation is God's outrageous love, his sacrificial love on the cross. The Bible says that he willingly laid down his life for us. He gave us, as we'll see here, his one and only unique son for you and for me. In fact, the Bible says that not only were we yet sinners, Romans 5.10 says that we were enemies of God. In fact, not just enemies, we were dead in our trespasses and what? Sins. And I often think when we say that, and I even just said it right there, when it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it's, I, I mean, I could paraphrase, that's what it says, but it really says a little bit more spe- specific. It says in Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. That's the teaching of Scripture. Your sins belong to you. And the thought is, is that God is holding you personally responsible for your sins. And so as I think of God, then we think of so loved. I mean, He loved a wicked world. In Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, And every intent of his heart was continually, what? Evil. That's the depravity of man. And if you want to understand what happened here in Paris, you're staring human depravity in the face. And before God had wiped the world out with the flood, he said that every intent of his heart was continually evil. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes said this in 9.3, that the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. 9.3 of Ecclesiastes. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. 
You could probably quote with me Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately, what? Sick. Who can understand it? The answer is only God can understand it, but we don't understand the wickedness of our heart. And, and this is just what we understand when we talk about man's depravity, man's sinfulness. A couple of weeks ago, I went to listen to a lecture at a junior college in our area. The lecturer was giving a lecture on his book that has just appeared called Liberalism. And I thought, well, this is be interesting. Liberalism, that's, the, that's his new book. That's what they're giving out at junior college and what the major universities are giving out. And the subtitle, something was like, why every American needs to be a liberal. Uh, this is going to be fascinating. So I went and heard him, and first five minutes he said something like this. He was quoting liberalism from the definition of a dictionary, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And it defined liberalism as, and it said this, as the inerrant, the, in, the inherent good of man. And I thought to myself, it's flawed right there. He's believing in the goodness of man. And then, of course, he's believing in the, the benefit of the government to help people. But as I thought about a biblical theology of what we were before Christ and what God moved to to, to love us, it wasn't anything in us. Our heart is desperately sick. And of course, they got questions afterward. Got a question from the audience on abortion. How would he justify abortion? Well, easily. In his mind, he justifies abortion for the rights of the the mother, never counting into, uh, taking into account the life of that child in that womb. And then he went on to say that many of the abortion clinics try to work their numbers down so that there's less abortion. In fact, he justified abortion as a cleaner way to do it because it's legalized now instead of illegal. So I'm sitting there thinking, you mean... Because his, his, his rationale was they're going to go get abortions prior to Roe versus Wade. So let's just legalize it so that there's a way to access it. And then he said that, that uh, it's hard to believe. He said that they're trying to work their numbers down. And I sat there and I thought that is an absolute bold-faced lie. I've talked to people who ran businesses for abortion clinics. I've listened to them speak. I've listened to one woman in Texas who owned six abortion clinics. And if you think they're trying to work the abortions down, you're far wrong. They're actually advocating what they're doing and they're after your children. And they're not just in the high school. They're not just in the junior high. They're at the elementary school systematically breaking down young women so that her goal, this is what she said out of her mouth, was to get the average young teenage girl to have three abortions by the time they're 18. And you say, what kind of mind would conceive of that? A depraved mind, which is all of us found ourselves in. But listen, we live in a very wicked world. When you turn your TV on and you see what happened in Paris, you're looking at, obviously, depravity to an extreme, okay? But you're looking at a fallen world. And beloved, I'm just saying, if we have and believe in the inerrant goodness of man, we won't have answers for this kind of stuff. Jesus said it this way, and again, I'm trying to illustrate that he loved the world, but he loved the world not because we're lovely, He didn't love us because you had something to bring to the plate. His love is so different than ours. It's agape love. It's sacrificial love. It's self-generated, if you will, by the one who gives it, not because he gets something back. But when I think of the world in which we live in, listen to what Jesus said. And you know this in Mark 7, 21. For from within, it's not from the outside that defiles the man. Jesus said it's for from within. Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts fornications, thefts, 
What's the next one? Murders. Premeditated murder comes from within. Adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And you know, this is not just some people are depraved and others aren't. Second Chronicles 6.36 says, For there is no man who does not sin. This is the world that he loved. Okay? Psalm 130, verse 3. If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is no one. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. No one. It's just we, we live in a fallen world, do we not? was at the hospital last night seeing somebody extended somebody who has extended family in the hospital at Fresno community and while I was there I went to go see a family that we have no relationship to somebody knows them from Washington DC and they called our church to go see this family and I went in, and I'm asking you to pray for this family. I believe the young man might know the Lord. His name is Buddy. I went in right into the room, and his mom was there, and his sister was there, and he was in a bed, turned a a little bit, and uh, he was involved in a car accident. And uh, he he was hit. He was struck in a high-speed chase and pursuit he's just driving by himself he's struck and now they he broke it broke his neck he's on a ventilator tube and he's a top gun fighter pilot down in Lemoore. 29 years of age and looking his dad in the eye he said to me you can imagine how difficult this is i said no i I cannot imagine how difficult this is. He said, I always expected maybe to get a call on one of his planes, his F-16 in the air. He said, I never thought I'd get this call from a car, from a man involved in sin, from a high-speed chase pursuit. We live in a world of sin, do we not? We live in a very depraved world You know the scripture in Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone, what? Astray. Each of us has turned to his, what? His own way. We were spiritually dead before Christ. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is, what? Death. And death spread, Romans 5.12, to all men because all sinned. This was the condition. This is the God who loved this world in which we lived. Romans 5.8 says, remember that? For while we were still, what? Helpless. Christ died, did he not, for the ungodly. He died at the right time. Calvin put it this way, and I think it's worth me mentioning it. Um, uh, It's Calvin, so he's big words. But listen, he said, our nature is so wickedly ambitious that when the question about the origin of our salvation arises, we quickly imagine diabolical things about our own merits. He said, so we imagine that God is reconciled to us because he has thought that we are worthy to be looked on by him. He said, but everywhere in Scripture, God's pure and simple mercy is extolled, which sets to one side, which sets to one side all merits. So, beloved, enough for me to begin our series here that the source of our salvation is God, God the Father, who so loved the world. It leads to our second element this morning Whom did Christ love? Whom did he love? Here's the second element, and it's, it will title it the scope of salvation. And you can see it right there, the scope of salvation. Here it is mentioned, look at it again in the text, for God so loved. Now, you know it gives that phrase, 
the world, the world, but we have to just stop there for a second. The scope of it, you understand, is not just the Jewish people. He doesn't just love the Jewish nation. Certainly, he did set his love on them. We'll look at that next week. Certainly, Nicodemus knew that. But I think it shocked Nicodemus. Because he said in 3.15 that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I think Nicodemus sat there and maybe we don't hear from again. And maybe the, dia- you know, the dialogue turned into a monologue because maybe he was shocked there. Now that phrase there that he so loved... The world is agape love. I mentioned that, and I don't want to go too far off. Too many people do too many word studies on what this means and what this means. I don't think it's that clear, but I think that's not to minimize the word. But agape is the form of sacrificial love. What's interesting here is the verb when it says so loved is placed before the subject God in the Greek so that it literally reads loved God, the world, is what it says. Now, when it makes that phrase there, God so loved the world, you and I both know that he's not referring to universal salvation. We know that. You you say, well, how do we know that? Well, look at the text in verse 18. He'll clarify it there. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned, what? Already. This is not referring to salvation, a universal salvation. It's just making it possible, if you will, for all. Look at John 3.36. Of course this is not eternal salvation. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Eternal judgment waits for those who reject Christ. Now listen, beloved, when it says that he so loved the world, we were without strength, were we not, to overcome sin. We were without strength, Satan, over Satan, the world, death, and hell. We couldn't live a righteous life, if you will, to save ourselves because we were paralyzed by our own sin and we weren't even seeking after God. Romans 8, 7 says that we were hostile toward God. We were enemies of God, as I mentioned, that we were helpless and ungodly and there was nothing in our person to make God love us, but, but he did. And it says here that he so loved the world. Listen, listen to as one commentator by the name of Burdick uh, expressed this love, this agape love. And he put three features to it. He said, number one, he said it's spontaneous. He said there is nothing of value in the person loved that called for such sacrificial love. He said, God of his own free will set his love upon us in spite of our enmity and sin. He said, agape is love that is initiated by the lover because he wills to love, not because of the value or lovableness of the person loved. So he said, number one, it's spontaneous. He said, number two, it's self-giving. He said, agape love is not interested in what it can gain, It is interested in what it can give. It is not bent on satisfying the lover, but on helping the one loved, whatever the cost. So number one, it's spontaneous. Number two, it's self-giving. And number three, it is active. He went on to say that agape is not mere sentiment cherished in the heart, nor is it mere words, however eloquent. It does involve feeling and may express itself in words, but it is primarily an attitude toward another that moves the will to act in helping meet the need of the world. And here, God so loved the world. I have a question for you. If God loves the world, and he did, then why is the believer not to love the world? In John, 1 John 2.15, maybe you have wondered that. In fact, the word world has so many ranges and differences of meanings, even in our own world, not just the biblical world. Sometimes people might say, as one said, are you uh, up with the scientific world? Okay. Sometimes we say this is the best of all possible worlds. We, we've heard someone say, she means the world to me. One penned the phrase, all of the world's a stage, okay? 
what, is, what does this mean here? God so loved the world. It's the Greek word cosmos, okay? That is the, the Greek word for world. Cosmos, we get our English word cosmetic from it. It just means to set in order. But there's ranges of this word. And let me just be quick here. I discussed some of this in First John with you. But I want you to understand what it is that he loved the world. Number one, the world can speak of the world of creation in which we live. In other words, sometimes you see that word world and it speaks of the creation. For example, Acts 17, 24, God made the world and all things in it. He's talking about the physical creation. The psalmist said that the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth, its firmament, and so forth. It's the created world. God created the world, the physical world, in Genesis 1.31, and he said it was good. And so it's okay, we can love the world, we can love the creation that God made, but understand, here's my point, Jesus in John 3.16 is not addressing the material world in which we live. You understand that. He's not saying, for God so loved the creation that he gave his only begotten son. So it's not that, though world means that. Secondly, and maybe one of the predominant uses, is when you find that word world, it is a world under the influence of evil. The world in the Bible is a system of evil. I don't know another way to say it than to say it that way. It is a system that is contrary to God in the Scriptures. It is a world in rebellion to God and Christ. It is a world steeped in sin and dominated by the evil one, according to 1 John 5.19. In 1 John chapter 1, the world is associated with darkness. And so here we begin to learn that it is an evil order that is contrary and opposed to God and to Christ. We know that that type of world and that second feature is under the dominion of Satan. Satan is described throughout the Gospel of John as the prince of the world. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And when it talks about the whole world, he's not talking about the creative world. He's talking about the world, the evil system that lives itself out. Satan holds it. He controls it. Satan in Ephesians 6.11 has demons working in this world. The world in that second component includes man's sinful thoughts, attitudes, judgments, desires, influences that are opposed to God. The world represents fallen man as opposed to God. Do you remember when Paul said of us in Ephesians 2.2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this, what, world. He's talking about the system of evil, if you will. Do you remember when Paul exhorted us in Romans 12, 2, to not be conformed to this, what, world. He's not talking about the creation. He's talking about the world system of evil. In fact, we have been chosen, the Bible says in John 17, out of this world, And so as such, we no longer belong to it, but we still live in the world in John 4, 17, John 17, 11, but we're to be distinct from it. So we live in a tension, beloved. We cannot be conformed to the world, but we cannot escape from it. We are to remain in it. We are to live within it and without becoming like it. And so no wonder John the Apostle later, this writer, said, do not love the world nor the things in the world. So here the world, I'm just giving you an idea. I don't want to belabor too long. The world could be, number one, creation itself. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Secondly, he can talk about the the evil world system that it describes in 1 John. That's not his focus here. There's a third meaning of the world. When it says, for God so loved the world, this is important, the world, thirdly, speaks of the human race. That's what it means, very simply. God so loved the world. He loved the human race is the thought. In fact, that is the thought of the Samaritan woman in 
John 4.42, when we said that we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And there, in that context, world, of course, means he's the Savior of the world. We sang this morning, there's no other Savior. The essence of John 3 is there's no other Redeemer. There's no other God. God Almighty so loved the world. He loved the human race. He is the propitiation, John said in 2.2, of not only for our sins, but also the sins of the, of the world. In other words, he loves the human race. First John in another passage in 4.14 says that Christ is the Savior of the world. It, it's the human race. In this, 1 John 4.9, the love of God was made manifest among us that God has sent His only Son into the world. And when I take it there, I don't think he's talking about the creative world. It could be. could be that it's spoken of the world of sin, but he, he sent his son into the world, the world that's made up of human beings. Certainly John the Baptist said this, remember in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, of the world. And so here is our wonderful, wonderful Savior. This is the source of our salvation. This is the scope of our salvation. You might say, but Scott, he also set his love upon us. He also loved us in a unique way. He does love the world, but it also says in Ephesians 1, 4, that in love he chose us before the foundation of the world. And you might be saying, well, Scott, on the one hand, it says in John three sixteen that he so loved the world, but on a very particular statement in Ephesians 1, 4, it says in love he predestined us. You say, how do you make sense of that? Well, you've got to come back next Sunday, okay? And, and we will look at it there. But listen, let me just finish on this note. We have a wonderful Savior, do we not? We have the only hope for this world. We have the only Savior who can take away our sins. And as you pillow your head tonight, just think about that. For God, the creator, the sustainer of the universe was moved because of the sinfulness of the world in which we live in to send his one and only unique beloved son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's a great God we serve and we'll look at it in the weeks to come.